Welcome to Ebenezer's Podcast, a podcast about hearing, understanding, and applying the Word of God to our lives. My name is Leighton Erickson, and I'm Ebenezer's Lead Pastor. Thanks for joining us today. Please check out our website at ebenezerbaptist.ca to connect with us and learn more about our ministries. I hope you enjoy the message. Three weeks ago, we began our sermon series on 1 Peter. Peter was writing to followers of Christ who had been dispersed throughout the Middle East and were experiencing persecution for their faith. In the midst of this suffering, Peter encourages his readers to focus on Jesus, using the work of Christ as a catalyst to live their lives in such a way that those who persecuted them would see and experience the difference that Jesus makes. In our world today, many Christians are experiencing intense persecution because of their faith. In our North American context, we don't encounter persecution and suffering nearly to the same degree as our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. But we have seen attitudes towards Christianity changing. The teachings of the Bible are being backed away from, and followers of Jesus are now considered out of date and actually someone to distance from. We may not be facing full-on persecution, but there is much that we can learn from the message of 1 Peter as it relates to engaging the culture that we currently live in. Two weeks ago, Leighton introduced the book of 1 Peter, focusing Jesus who is our hope. Last week, Cal finished chapter 1 with a discussion and a call to holiness. Today we're looking at the next section of 1 Peter, and I'll read that for us. 1 Peter 2 will begin with verses 4 through 6. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. At the start of chapter 2, Peter is using the analogy of the newborn and of milk. But here in verse 4, Peter shifts the imagery to that of a stone or a rock and that of constructing, building a building out of stone. The word stone, or some form of it, is actually used nine times in the next five verses. So obviously this is an important concept for us to to grab a hold of. Now this imagery of God as a stone is often used in Scripture. It's first used as a reference to God in Genesis in a blessing given by Jacob. I think it's chapter 49. In the New Testament, we see the imagery carries over. In 1 Corinthians 10, Christ is called the rock. Now this imagery of a stone or of a rock is important. It gives us the picture of stability of a firm position, which is immovable and unshakable. It's solid ground for us. In 1 Peter, Jesus is referred to not only as a stone, but as the living stone. Now, just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter as a church family. The resurrection tells us that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's alive. He's risen from the grave. Now, Peter tells us that Jesus is the living stone, capable of giving life to all who believe. In the Old Testament, in Exodus 17, we actually have a picture of this. The Israelites had been traveling through the desert on their way to the Promised Land when they ran out of water. They were so thirsty that they were ready to kill Moses for leading them to that place. But in the middle of the crisis, God directs Moses to a stone, and he commands him to strike it with his staff. Water miraculously pours out of the stone and provides for the entire nation, all the people and all the livestock. The stone that supplied water brought life to the people and in fact saved the entire nation from certain death. Just as the stone in the desert brought life to the people, Jesus is the stone who gives spiritual life. Christ, the living stone, pours out living water, as we see in the interaction between Jesus and the woman at the well in John chapter 4. 
This living water imparts eternal life to all who place their faith in his perfect substitutionary sacrifice. Now, as we continue in verse 4, we see that Jesus is also chosen by God and precious to him. Before I asked Sandy to marry me, she and I happened to be dropping by a jewelry store to look at engagement rings. And some of you guys, you kind of know how this works, right? You're out looking at stuff and all of a sudden, you just happen to drop by a jewelry store. All along, I'd been thinking this engagement ring wouldn't be that expensive. You know, a couple hundred bucks, that should do the trick. And I know that there's some of you who are probably laughing as I mentioned that. But as we started to look at rings, two things happened. First of all, my jaw dropped and I realized this is going to cost me that much. And then I began to realize the importance and the significance of this stone. And the fact that this would be on Sandtown for the rest of her life as a representation of our love and commitment to each other. This stone was important. This stone was irreplaceable. This stone was the most significant piece of jewelry I would ever purchase because of what it represented. It was incredibly precious. It was beyond value in our eyes anyway because of what it represented. And that's what Peter is saying here. Excuse me. Jesus, the living stone, is a highly prized stone. Excuse me. A rare stone. A costly gem that serves a purpose of highest honor. This living stone, Jesus, was chosen by the Father for a very special purpose, to give himself as a sacrifice, as payment for the sins of all humanity. Jesus was chosen by God to be Savior and Messiah, to be King and Priest. The Father chose him for this, to be Head of the Church, Savior of all people, Judge of the world, and Lord of the universe. And now I want for a moment to just jump down to verse 6. We're skipping verse 5. We'll go back to that in just a little bit. Verse 6 is a quote from Isaiah 28, 16 regarding the Messiah. I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Peter uses this Old Testament messianic statement on purpose. And he wants to show his listeners that the prophecy has been fulfilled, that the Messiah has come and that he is, in fact, Jesus. He also wants to show us that Jesus, the Messiah, this precious stone, has become the cornerstone for that which God is building. Now, just think for a second. When you hear the word cornerstone, what comes to mind? What do you think of? For me, I think about modern footings and pilings and concrete, and maybe a hunk of cement two feet square by four feet. You know, it's pretty big in in modern terms. But as I dug into this passage, I began to realize that the cornerstones used in biblical construction were far more significant than I first thought. One writer said that numerous cornerstones have been found in the Middle East, some measuring in the neighborhood of 12 feet square by 70 feet long. I mean, that's a big chunk of stone. A piece of stone that large would weigh several tons. And so you can see that this massive cornerstone would anchor the building. It would keep it from moving. It would determine the angles of the foundation and the orientation of the structure that's built upon it. Just as I thought about modern construction and foundations when I, you know, encountered this phrase cornerstone, the imagery of Solomon's temple would have come to mind for many of those who read Peter's letter. The physical, literal building of the temple, the cornerstone being laid, the thousands and thousands of stones that were cut and laid perfectly on top of the cornerstone, and the temple building slowly but surely coming together, walls growing in height, doors and window openings being laid out. Now, with all of this stone in mind, all of this building and temple analogy going on, let's now go back to verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. 
See, in the Old Testament, the physical temple was the place where God dwelt. It was the place where people came to be in the presence of God. It was the place where people came to worship. But in the New Testament, the building has come alive. The building has come alive. Now, Peter must have heard the words of Jesus echoing in his heart as he wrote this section of his letter. Remember Peter? He's the guy that Jesus said this to. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. He must have been beside himself as Peter wrote this. The living stone Jesus has been established by God as the cornerstone um, when he gave himself on our behalf. And those who embrace Jesus become living stones as well. And these are laid on the cornerstone of Christ. And Peter was the first of those stones. This is what God was building. When Jesus gave himself as the precious stone chosen by God to redeem all who placed their faith in him, the location of the temple changed. No longer is it the physical building made of literal stone as it was in the Old Testament. Instead, the temple has become the living church made up of followers of Jesus. Believers living their lives based on the foundation of Jesus, but striving to live in alignment with that living cornerstone, striving to live out his purposes and his ways, continually deriving their life from him through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Because of the work of this precious cornerstone, and here's the first point I want to make today. The church is now the people of God. It's no longer a building. It's not about a building. The church is now the people of God, basing their lives on the foundation of Jesus, striving to align how they live with him. It's no longer this physical location. We who believe are the church, basing our lives on the living cornerstone Jesus. Now, for those dispersed believers that Peter wrote to, those who were discouraged and suffering, uh, this understanding must have been tremendously encouraging. This meant that they were no longer alone. This meant that they were no longer isolated. There was community among believers, identity as people of God based in Jesus, the living cornerstone, and they were unified as his people and as his church. Now, in the latter part of verse 5, this whole picture continues to develop for us. So I'm going to go, I'll go to that now. We've talked about being living stones built on, on the spiritual house, being built into a spiritual house. Now, for what? To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, not only was Solomon's temple the place where God dwelled and worshipers met with him, it was also the place where the priests presented literal sacrifices. These were as an act of worship and as payment for sin. But in the living temple that Peter writes of, it is now the living stones the believers that have become a holy priesthood, which offer up a new form of sacrifice. Romans 12.1 says this, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Hebrews 13.15 says this, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Verse 16 continues in Hebrews, And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Now this brings me to the second point that I want to draw out of this passage today, and here it is. As living stones, believers function as a holy priesthood whose lives and activities are lived for God as a sacrifice to Him. This means that every aspect of our lives becomes a sacrifice to the Lord. It means that everything we do becomes a holy activity if we do it for the glory of God. Parenting our kids, that can be a holy activity if we do it unto God. How you win and lose on the sports field, that can be a form of sacrifice if we play for God. 
how you work at your job or run your business. Again, a holy activity, a sacrifice that we can give unto the Lord. How we interact with the people that live around us, with our neighbors, again, is a form of sacrifice. It becomes a holy activity if we seek to honor God in those relationships. As a living church, we do all of life as a sacrifice to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So in verses 4 to 6, Jesus is described as the cornerstone. And the Old, temple, uh, the Old Testament temple is transformed into this incredible living church made up of believers striving to live for Christ. Now as we move into verses 7 and 8 in our section today, Peter shifts the focus and he considers the impact of Jesus, the cornerstone, on those who do not believe. Uh, I'll read it starting in 7. Now to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. While I was working in our family business, I was carrying a piece of heavy equipment one day over a very rough area of the job site. Pieces of broken concrete and huge rock-hard lumps of clay were laying all over the place. A big backhoe had been working in there. And I happened to step on a piece that I thought was solid, but it shifted and it threw me off balance. And I fell and I landed right on my knee, exactly on the edge of a concrete foundation. Now, I stung pretty good. But when I rolled up my pant leg to take a look, there was no gash, no blood, so I just kept on working. But a few minutes later, my knee started to feel really strange, so I took another look. This time when I rolled up my pant leg, I actually found that there was a pouch on the front side of my knee, a pouch of liquid. And it wiggled like jello when I walked. It was bizarre. It was about this big around. You could poke your finger into it about that far. See, what happened is the edge of the foundation had punctured that internal sac around my knee joint and I had what they call synovial fluid gathering on the front of my knee. In verses 7 and 8, Peter quotes Isaiah 8.14, where Jesus is described as a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. It refers literally to a loose stone or a loose rock in the pathway that is tripped over or kicked out. In the Gospels, most of the religious leaders of Jesus' day could not bring themselves to believe in Christ. In their mind, obedience to the law was what God required. No carpenter's son from Nazareth could tell them otherwise. Jesus' teaching on faith and forgiveness was offensive to them. They couldn't understand that Christ's message brought freedom from religious re regulation. All that they could see was that Jesus' message meant all of their rule-keeping, all of the caution, all the training, all the effort, all of the understanding from the Old Testament and the law, all of that was, was out the window for them. And that was offensive. They stumbled over that. They kicked at that. Now in Mark 8.31, Jesus tells us, um, his disciples, what will happen to him as a result of offending those in authority. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. The message of Jesus is offensive to those who do not believe. It's offensive that I'm not good enough on my own. It's offensive that my good deeds won't do it. It's offensive that my religion may not make me right with God. It's offensive that my way of life is considered sinful. Peter wrote his letter to believers, many of whom were suffering persecution at the hand of those who were in authority over them. 
like the religious leaders in the Gospels, their persecutors were offended by Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus and they kicked at Jesus and they kicked at the believers as well as a result. But in the latter part of verse 7, which Peter is actually quoting from Psalm 118 verse 22, there's a caution given to those who don't believe. To those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, in some Bible versions, cornerstone is used a few times in this section. But in some as well, the older NIV, the latter is is translated as capstone, not cornerstone. The use of both cornerstone and capstone is actually more accurate because it paints this fuller picture of Jesus for us. In Middle Eastern construction, the cornerstone anchored the building. It determined the angles and the orientation of the structure. We talked about that. Now, the capstone was the top stone in an archway. We've seen pictures of that, like medieval medieval castles. It's a top stone and it has angles like this and it holds the walls and the ceiling. It keeps them from falling in on themselves. So when we view Jesus as both the cornerstone and the capstone, we see that he is both underneath, upholding everything, tying everything together, and above. He's seated as the glorious head over all. Romans says, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. Jesus is over all. So in verse 8, Peter is reminding his readers that those who reject Jesus are in fact disregarding the one who is both the foundation and the one who has been put in place over all as head by God. Peter discusses the result of this rejection in the latter part of verse 8. In the NIV, it reads this way. They stumbled because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now, this verse, this portion, is actually a pretty difficult part of the passage. There are some who argue that this is a statement on predestination. That's the theology that that some people are simply destined for disobedience and judgment. Now, others suggest this speaks more about the destiny of those who refuse to embrace the message of Jesus. Their destiny is in keeping with their rejection of Christ. Now, personally, I found that I'm more in agreement with this, this latter position. In my understanding, the Living Bible actually does a really good job of translating this thought. They will stumble because they will not listen to God's word nor obey it. And so this punishment must follow that they will follow. Now, according to this understanding, there's punishment for those who, who refuse to recognize Jesus as the cornerstone, as the capstone. And this brings us to our third point today. Each person's response to Jesus is important. Everyone's response to Jesus is important. For those of us who see him as precious and build on him as the cornerstone, there's reward. But for those who kick against him and reject him, there's consequences. When I stumbled and hit my knee on that foundation, I was the one who was hurt. I suffered the consequences. Please Don't think even for a moment that you can kick against Jesus and win. God's a righteous God. He has no choice but to punish sinfulness because of his character. But, and that's capitalized, but God is also a loving God. Because of his exceeding grace and mercy, he has provided a way out for us to be forgiven and made right with him. And that way is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Don't let this offend you. Don't let this bug you. Instead, ask God to make himself real to you. And you can experience his peace even today. 
Now, verses 4 through 8 of 1 Peter 2 describe the blessing and calling of those who embrace Jesus. And it talks as well about the difficulty and ultimate punishment of those who reject Him. This dichotomy, I think, also explains why unbelievers can be so hostile towards those who love Jesus. The message of Jesus is offensive to those who refuse to listen. And because believers identify with Jesus, we are also an offense to those who refuse Him. And here's our fourth point. Persecution comes to followers of Jesus because we identify with Christ. In the moment, this persecution can be intense and painful. But persecution is a symptom of our alignment with Jesus. Persecution is a symptom of our alignment with Jesus. And with this perspective, we can actually find some reason for joy in the midst of suffering. The apostles did. Acts 5 verse 40. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering a disgrace for the name. In the final two verses for today, Peter ties up this whole discussion of, of being chosen. Starting at verse 9. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the Old Testament, and there's this interplay between the Old Testament and the New Testament all through this section. In the Old Testament, Israel was called God's special people. God called them to represent him in the world. Uh, in Exodus, we read this, chapter 19, verse 5. Out of all nations, you'll be my treasured possession. In Isaiah 43, we, we read this. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now, the nation of Israel was chosen by God and set apart by God, not because anything that they had done, not because of their own goodness, just simply because God chose to extend his mercy. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 and 8 says this, The Lord set his affection on you and chose you. And then into verse 8, it was because the Lord loved you. Unfortunately, Israel sinned and rejected God. Peter's words in verse 10 are a reference to Hosea, where a similar phrase is used to describe Israel's rejection of God. Um, the prophet Hosea had had a child, and the Lord said to him, verse 9, Call him Loami, which means, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. But Israel's rejection of God doesn't mean that he was done with them. His plan is to continue to draw them to himself and redeem them through Jesus. Hosea continues, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. In Romans 9, 25, Paul actually references this same section of Hosea, but he's applying it to the Gentiles. And in verse 10, Peter is using these same words of Hosea as well. But he's using it to describe both the Israelite Jew of Hosea as well as the Gentile of Paul. And I'll read it again. Once you were not a people, now you are the chosen, are the people rather of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now the intentional use of these words back in Hosea, this interplay with the Old Testament, is very significant. It's very important. Um, and this indicates, and this is our fifth point here today, that all who have accepted Jesus, both Jew, both Gentile, and anyone in between, all who have accepted Jesus are now considered God's special people. 
tasked with representing him. So this is really important. This means that the majority of the Old Testament intentions that God had for Israel now apply to the new temple that's being built on the living cornerstone of Jesus. We who follow Jesus are now God's chosen people. Again, chosen not because of anything that we've done, but chosen because of God's incredible love. Many are familiar with John 3.16. I'll read it for us today. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This means that we who follow Jesus are now a royal priesthood. Jesus is our king and we are his people. As such, we're a royal house, a royal body of priests. As priests of King Jesus, we have the ability through the Spirit of God, the capacity, and even the responsibility. We're called to do this, to be priests, to worship him, to intercede on behalf of, of others, of those who come, and to engage in the mission of God. This is part of our responsibility as a royal priesthood, to engage in these things, the job of what a priest would be doing. We also are now a, a holy nation. We who follow Jesus are a holy nation. Just as God set Israel apart in the Old Testament as his special representatives, the church, built on the living cornerstone, has become God's special possession, set apart to accomplish his work. And what's that work? This passage is great. It's a job description for us. It even describes the work that God has for us. We who follow Jesus are called to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. This new living church is to advertise for God, to be a positive advertisement for God, both in how we live and in what we say. We're to proclaim the wonders of God, that he brought us out of a place of darkness where we understood nothing of forgiveness or even purpose, and that he brought us to a place where we now experience the freedom of forgiveness and where we have this call to be representatives of our Heavenly Father. What a privilege. You know, when you think of it, what a privilege, what a position. We are the living church of God, built on the living cornerstone of Jesus himself. What a calling. We're called to represent God as ministers of his love, engaging in his mission. And lastly, to close, I just want to bring us back to the last part of verse 6. It says this, The one who trusts in him, this precious cornerstone, will never be put to shame. Jesus tells us that in this world we'll have trouble. Hardship will come. Difficulty will come. And even persecution. That will come our way. But when we finally stand before God, after our earthly time is done, those who have put their trust in Jesus will not experience shame. The suffering will be gone and will be welcomed into the place that Jesus has prepared for us. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you today for the letter that Peter has written, for the hope that it gives us, for the purpose that it gives us, for the calling that it, that it calls to us with. And Lord, thank you that because of Christ, we can embrace these things and that we can live in community as your people, that we can live as the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, the living church of Jesus built on the cornerstone. Father, help us to represent you well. Where we've, where we've fallen in that way, forgive us. Encourage us. Lift us up to help us live in a way that would be more pleasing to you. And God, empower us to represent you, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God who represent you so well in this culture that we live in. 
And if we encounter persecution, if we encounter a distancing because people are backing away from us, help us to see that um, as a result of, of being identified with you. And we lay those situations with you, praying that you would do the work and that you would empower us to live such godly lives that, that those around us would see the difference that you make. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the calling and the position that we have in Christ to live as the people of God, the temple, the living temple of you, of, of you living on that, that precious cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Thank you for these things today. We ask that you might go with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. Don't forget to check out our church website at ebenezerbaptist.ca. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can let us know by clicking like and by subscribing to our podcast channel. God bless you and thanks for listening.